Hi, everybody. Welcome along to episode 42 of Percussion Discussion. Hope you're all well and happy out there. Uh, first of all, please check out our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, our YouTube channel. Um, if you wouldn't mind subscribing to that, I'd be very grateful. And this way it ensures that you don't miss any of the great interviews that we've already done and any of the ones we've got coming up. And we've got some great ones coming up too. So please, if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. Um, you can also listen to our um, interviews as a podcast as well. You can find those on Apple Music and Spotify. So if that's your thing, then go there, check them out, download them, and you can listen on the go. On to today's guest. This is um, a huge, huge treat for me personally. Um, this guy is one of the pioneers of uh, rock slash metal drumming as we know it. Um, one of the original members of the Alice Cooper band, obviously he's played on such albums as Love It to Death, Schools Out, Billion Dollar Babies, played on all the biggest Alice Cooper hits as well as had a hand in writing them. Um, I think you can describe him as a legendary drummer um, and he's a wonderful guy. It gives me immense pleasure to welcome Mr. Neil Smith. My pleasure. My pleasure. Glad to talk to you, even though we seem to be a little distance away from each other. Just a little, a little, little difference with the temperature as well, because you're in Arizona at the moment. Is that right? Yes, yeah, in Arizona. Yeah, it's about a little over ninety degrees here. That's Fahrenheit. I'm not sure what that is Celsius. But yeah, well, that's hot. It, 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 it was cold. It was. It was. I was actually trying to snow this morning in North Wales. So you know. Oh, bro. Okay. How far yeah. away are you from London, Matty? Uh, I'm about. Oh gosh, probably two hundred miles from London. I think. Okay. So okay. a little, little bit. It's kind of, kind of, we're in the middle of the country rather than the the, the bottom end, if you like. But uh, it's pretty a bit warm. Yeah. So obviously we're in um very weird times at the moment with lockdowns and pandemics. Something none of us have really gone through in the past. How have you? Have you kept, managed to keep busy? Well, you see, I I basically retired from the residential real estate business in uh, New England about five years ago or so. So. I, I've sort of been on, um, I've had an endless weekend for over five years. So I always have to find things to do. Gives me more, I got more, uh, you know, back into writing since the induction into the Hall of Fame in 2011. Uh, got more, you know, back into the music, uh, working with Dennis and Michael and Alice and writing songs. Some of them appeared on the uh, Welcome to My Nightmare album in 2011 after the Hall of Fame. And then we came to the UK in 2017. We'd already recorded uh, three songs on Alice's Paranormal album. Uh, and then on his newest album, Detroit Stories, the original band with uh, Dennis, Michael, and myself, and Alice, we recorded two new songs, Social Debris, one that I had originally written, and I Hate You, that Dennis had originally written. And the, uh, you know, the, the whole album and it seems to be uh, being really well-received. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the UK and Europe, the United States, Canada, and Australia, and uh, and that's great. And, and I'm out here to meet with Michael again. Uh, and you know, well, he's been writing some new material. I've been writing a whole album's worth of material for my Killsmith project. And uh, and the original band always gets first crack at anything that I uh, I write and I'm putting together. And that and believe me, uh, Maddie, that keeps me busy with everything else that goes on. We have. I do a lot of traveling. We have a house in Finland also. Okay. So I like to get over uh, to Finland once a year, but last year we couldn't go because of the pandemic. Mm. 
So that keeps me in New England and Arizona. And, uh, you know, between that music, golf and grocery shopping, I stay pretty busy. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, hey, that sounds like a pretty good life to me, you know. Um, <laughs> let's go back to the Social Debris song because that it's a great song. It's a good album, a uh, great album. That that uh, song, you, that uh, particularly that particular song, the sound of it, it sounds such. It's um, how do I describe it? It's a, it sounds really live. Was it record? Was it recorded live? It's such a roomy sound. If you know what I, if you get where I'm going, drums just. Yeah, sound, no, I know what you mean. Well, we always have the most success when we, uh, Michael and uh, Michael Bruce and Dennis Dunaway and myself, we put down the basic tracks. Mm. Uh, Alice was in the studio, uh, you know, singing the reference vocal. Bob Ezrin was at the helm uh, producing the uh, the session, and it's a it's that old chemistry that comes mm. back every time we play, and uh, we had we had uh, on the Paranormal album we had uh, Genuine American Girl, which was a song that I had originally written and mm. uh, was on the uh, on that album, and then the Welcome to My Nightmare, I'll Bite Your Face Off, that was a a, a rewrite of a song I had on the Killsmith Two album called. Uh, Vampire, uh, Vampire Moon, and it was, you know, it, every time we're back in the studio, we rewrite. The chemistry is all there. Yeah. And the the sound when uh, it, it just can't be reproduced. Mm. Michael has his own style and his sound uh, with the rhythm guitar and the SG that he's always played. And Dennis, of course, un, un, undoubtedly him when you hear his bass lines. He's, He's a great bass player. Yeah. And between him and, and me as uh, the rhythm section, you know, it, it, it just falls together. Yeah. And, and it, you know, like I said, the most success we have is when it sounds like a garage band playing a song. You yeah. know, there's overdubs and, you know, you clean up the tracks. This day and age, there's nothing like it used to be recording. We used to be able to, the only thing that had to be, as you well know, back in the day, when you're recording uh, audio on tape, the drums had to be perfect from the beginning of the song to the end of the song. Anything yeah. else could be overdone. Yeah. The vocals, the bass, the guitar, everything else could be But the drums had to be exactly right on and, and perfect. So I think in all the albums that we did, seven studio albums as the Alice Cooper group, there was only one song, I, I don't remember which one it was, that Bob Ezrin actually cut the tape in the middle and kept first part of the song from one song and the second half of the song from another song. It only happened one time in uh, in all those albums that we did. So I think that's why our sound is still there. Bob, of course, even puts it under a magnifying glass and emphasizes it more than anybody else could, I believe, too. Yeah, you've all you've all definitely got your own thumbprint or fingerprint, haven't you? you, you you're pretty yeah. easily to rec easy recognizable, you know, when you hear it, yeah. which is a great thing at, at that point. That's it, the job's done, isn't it? I think. Well, in this day and age, when everything seems so homogenized and all the sounds so, seem so much the same, it's that's what I miss from the seven uh, from the sixties and seventies. Every hmm. drummer had their own sound. I mean, hmm. even in the Yardbirds, uh, Jim McCarty had his own sound. Ringo did. Charlie Watts, of course. Keith Moon. Ginger Baker, they all had their own sound on yeah. their drums. They were able to record the way they played, the way they tuned their drums. And really with, uh, you know, sampling drums and everything now, that doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. So, uh, but we still do it. Mm. Bob does not sample my drums. Those are the actual drums that I play. And, uh, you know, we, we, we work from there. 
Well, if you know, if it's good enough for those classic albums, it should be good enough for now, shouldn't it? It's a, it's a simple fact. Well, I mean, still, still, even with the technology of recording today, I, I think you take in things that we've done off of Alice's last three albums and you compare them sound-wise. Mm. Uh, that's the technology in the studio, the microphones, the equipment. Yeah. It, it's far superior. But yeah. he still captures that essence, that element of you know what, what and how we sounded you know, back in the day. Yeah. And right, rightly so. I mean, speaking of back in the day, can, can, can we go back, Neil, to kind of where music began for you? What were your first memories of music, if you like? I mean, forget drums for now, but we'll get to that. But who, who what's your first memory of music, you know, as, as, as a youngster? Well, my mother was a, uh, she played the trombone mm-hmm. in a marching band in high school in the 40s uh, during World War II. So she was a big fan of uh, uh, Glenn Miller, trombone player, and uh, Benny Goodman, um, Gene Krupa, all the mm-hmm. all the classic swing era musicians. And so I I grew up not only with rock and roll on AM radio in the Midwest in Akron, Ohio, coming out of Cleveland, um, Ohio, also had the uh, the big band sounds all around me all the time. Yeah, and I I, I love the music of the big band era. And then, of course, when rock and roll came with, with Elvis and, and everybody at Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and all the other greats back in the day, uh, Chubby Checker, and there were all the dances that came along, Little Eva, the Locomotion, Mashed Potato. I mean, all those songs just really got me into music. Yeah. yeah. And, and my mother, because the only instrument we had was the trombone, I started taking trombone lessons. All right. Okay. And in school. And it was a disaster. I mean, it was it was a worse. I you know I was banging on wooden spoons on pots and pans since I was a little kid, like a lot a lot of drummers you know did as a little kid before you had drums. Yeah. And so the, the the trombone didn't work out for me. And my cousin, by this time I was in still elementary school, maybe fifth or sixth grade. And I had a cousin who uh, and aunt and uncle, very musical family. They had a big dairy farm in, in Ohio, but they, they all were very much into music. And he had a snare drum. He loaned it to me. And I took it to school and started learning the snare drum in about the fifth or sixth grade. And my uh, first of all, my music teacher was much happier that I was playing a drum than playing a trombone. <laughs> so that was that was the good news. But I was this is well before the Beatles and the and the British invasion. This was yeah. this was when, you know, the 50s into the 60s when the music was making that transition from rock and roll uh, in the 50s to what was going to become the surf sound, California sound, in the early 60s when I got into the Beach Boys big time. And by then, I was in marching band in school. I was in the uh, the orchestra, uh, taking private lessons as well as lessons uh, in school. So I, I learned the snare drum, all the rudiments, um, Alex Dunthart, who was one of the big uh, uh, pipe and drum drummers from the 50s, uh, was one of my inspirations, too. People talk about drum inspirations. Yeah. Uh, and, pipe and pipe and drums were a huge inspiration because I was in the marching band. Sure. And uh, as a matter of fact, there was one time um, at Derby Downs in Akron, Ohio, they had the annual soapbox derby. The kids would build their own soapbox uh, derbies. And a couple of times I marched down the hill in a pipe and drum band. Mm. And uh, so I, 
you know, anything I could do to get my hand on a set of drumsticks and play my snare drum. Yeah. And that's even why in the, the song Killer in the Alice Cooper group, when we when we when we uh, executed Atlas, I'm there with the snare drum in front of the uh, in front of the gallows playing the death dirge on the song uh, uh, Killer. Yeah. So you know that influenced me far beyond just uh, getting into the music business. Mm. And it, it was all those inspirations with swing and the and the popular rock and roll of the 50s and 60s. And then forget about it. The British invasion, it was all over. That's what I definitely was going to do. And I had been playing drums. I got my first set of drums uh, in 1961 when I still lived in Ohio. 1963, I moved. 1963, I moved from Akron, Ohio to Phoenix, Arizona. And of course, the story there later, a few years later, I met the guys yeah. and we eventually became Alice Cooper and the best friends in the world. Mm. So um, it all stemmed from those early days uh, in elementary school when I was exposed to, to music through my family yeah. uh, with, um, with the music from the 40s, the 50s and the 60s. Because I think when, when and, and I, your, your, your drumming has influenced so many drummers all over the world, you know, it, 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 you're one of the first names out of people's lips, uh, you know, oh yeah, you know, Neil Smith, uh, you know, there's, there's a few, there's four or five, and you're always in amongst them. And you have a real swing to your playing, don't you? And, and do you think, was that a conscious thing? Or did it, did it, is it just like you've soaked it in and it, it does have a swing to it? Uh, do you agree with that? Boy, Maddie. You know, not too many people have been as insightful as you about that. That's one of the biggest things about drumming, and nobody, the only person I ever heard mention it is um, uh, Ginger Baker. Really? He was still alive. And the swing, Billion Dollar Babies works when Dennis and I play it because of the swing mm. in that bolero kind of a yeah, kind yeah. Of feel, that tango kind of a feel. And it's the swing in it. Other drummers try to play it one, two, three, four. You can't do it. No. It is impossible. And that's why it, that song never sounds the same unless Dennis and I are playing that mm. song. And I'm... you hit the nail on the head. I, uh, I praise you for that because <laughs> that is a huge part. And that goes back to this quote-unquote the swing era where all those bands had that. And, you know, that's when you snap your fingers and snap your feet mm. you know, and, and you tap your feet to the offbeats and the onbeats. Yeah. And that's what you have to be aware of. And that's what we were all the time. And it was the chemistry of the band. Uh, when I, I joined the band, we had already jammed several times mm. uh, at different points. And we just, before I was actually a member of the band, we were all Dennis, Mike Bruce, Glenn Buxton, and uh, Dennis and I, we'd go out in the desert here in Arizona take a six pack with us, a couple of joints and uh, get loose and just jam in the middle of the night. And uh, that's where a lot of the songs from British View and Easy Action came from. Yeah. And some of those songs like uh, uh, Reflected was originally elected, then reflected, then elected again. Right, so okay. those have been in, in the works for a long time. And yeah. no, you you hit it right on the head. And I oh, well, that. Me, me, me and Ginger had it right. Huge. Yeah, you. Well, I agree, one hundred percent. So, was it um, was it a conscious thing, the swing, or was it just there? Did you try and make it have that, or was it had you just soaked it in and that's the way you played? I, I you know, either way, no, it's great. you can't you can't force it. Yeah, it's it's the chemistry of the band. It was just that's what happens when we when we play. Mm. Uh, that's my style. 
um, Halo of Flies is the same thing. Yeah. You go through that many transitions in one song. Yeah. Uh, you have to have one thing, one common denominator, and that's the feel for it and the swing. Yeah. And I think that's what gels that song. Was that was a whole lot of different parts of a lot of different songs that we put together mm. in uh, in one piece. We used to be very good at uh, putting songs together, and, and, uh, and we even did it on album, putting the last three songs of an album together. Lova did that the same way, segues between the songs, and it's the swing that yeah. makes that happen. Just not coming in and knowing what to play, but yeah. you have to keep the one continual swing from one part to the other. Yeah. So so Halo of Flies is, is a combination of songs rather than – is that how the, the different feels came for the – Cause, exactly, because it's yeah, kind it of it's, a, whole, a bunch of a bunch of incomplete songs. Right, like on Pretty's for You, we wrote short songs, mm. and we had a lot of parts between Dennis writing myself and Michael, uh, Alice too. Alice would write on guitar. Mm. Uh, you know, we had these parts, and they never developed into a song. So mm. when we got to the Killer album, we took all those parts, put them together in a in a jar, shook them up, and then put them on the table, and then just. <laughs> Glued them all together, and that, and we came up with Halo Flies. Because it all—it's almost, um, it almost touching on progressive rock at times, isn't it? With the changes and things, you know. It's oh, very uh, much so, very much so. And it, but we were very good at that. Yeah. What Frank Zappa said back in the day, he said that a lot of bands try to speed up and slow down and go to different parts, but they don't do it as one unit. Mm. We moved as one between the rhythm guitar, lead guitar, two guitars, bass and drums. We, and even when Alice was playing harmonica, which I used to love when Alice mm. played harmonica, we could slow down and speed up. And it was always, we were always, there was nobody leading. We all just followed the, the feeling as, as one unit. And it kept going. And, it would, and, and, and again, that was chemistry and it was all feel. But you were widely known as, you know, and it's still said today. You were you were one of the best rock bands that, that ever were, the original Alice Cooper band. You know that, that it's it's there. Everyone says it, um, and it's true, isn't it? And it's it's when you get that natural chemistry where you can just just ebb and flow together. No one stands yeah. out. Perfect. But you know what that came, that came from, Maddie, is that for the year before we set, we had pretty few and easy action out. We were on the road for over a year. We left LA. On the road, we were surviving on the road, not making much money, getting into debt, mm. using credit cards. and But we had to play. We had to play live. And, and we didn't have a hit single. We had two albums, one album and two albums, but no hit single. So we played these outdoor festivals uh, weekend after weekend through the United States, the Midwest, Canada. And we had to learn how to get people to give us a standing ovation without having a hit song. Yeah. That is almost impossible to do. We already ha- we already had that and we knew how to do it. So by the time Love It to Death and Killer came out, we started having hit songs. The rest was easy for us. Yeah, sure. We had already been getting people to have standing ovations without having a hit song <laughs> just by our just by what we did on stage. Yeah. And we learned the Chambers Brothers were a great live band back in the day. They could of course they had a, a huge hit song of time. But they were great live, better live than anywhere. Yeah. And we learned from them. We learned from a lot of other bands. And we learned from ourselves just by by doing it. And by the time we had a hit album, everybody go, well, what did you think when you were when Love to Death came out? And you had I'm 18 and Cotton to Dream, very popular songs off the album. 
He said, well, we thought there were going to be hit songs off Pretty's For You. It took us three. I mean, we were so ready for everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and we could sell ourselves on stage. We could, we could make a, sh- a stage show around any album that we recorded. And uh, it, it, by that time, it came as natural as the swing, the feeling, the chemistry. Yeah. And the only missing ingredient in that whole formula, because we had a record company, we had management with Chef Gordon and the Live Enterprises and Joe Greenberg. Yeah. We needed their producer. And it was Bob Ezrin that came in, took an eight-minute song like I'm 18, puts it down to a three-minute single, and then the magic starts happening after yeah. we have some hit songs. Do, do you remember when I'm 18 came out? Can you remember the like the the the, 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 you know, everything happening, everything sort of going through the roof. I mean, you were always already a massively successful band. I guess it's just opened it up to more people, to more ears. I guess that's the way it works. Well, I, I think the biggest thing that, that we noticed, Maddie, was that George Harrison had a song out called My Sweet Lord, which is yep. a great song. Yep. And they were both climbing up the charts in the Midwest. And I'm going, oh, my God, we're we're in competition with one of the Beatles. I, go, I can't believe it. And I still think George, I love all the Beatles. All of them. And I still think George Harrison had, was the most commercially successful yeah. uh, Beatle after the, the, the breakup. I loved his song. I loved his style. I loved his guitar work. He was phenomenal. And unfortunately, uh, again, we lost him way too soon. Yeah. But, uh, he, you know, I, I just couldn't believe that I'm 18 was climbing the charts in the mm-hmm. Midwest and in Canada. Uh, you know, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Toronto, uh, and, and and we're in competition with them. And we're listening on the radio when they play My Sweet Lord, and then I'm 18. So that, I think, was the last shock and the biggest shock, because like I said, we were so ready by then. Yeah. So after that, then it was just us against the world. Yeah. You must have been a promoter's dream to, to send out on the road. You really must, because, you know, the show, the songs, the well-oiled band, just... You can't you fail. Know, I, and I think I think that's that's what we gave Shep Gordon and Joe Greenberg, our managers at a lot of enterprises. They had the balls and the nerve to promote uh, a band that had been totally laughed at uh, all of our career. Thought it was everybody thought we were a joke. The two flop albums, lucky lucky as hell to even get a third shot uh, with Love It to Death. Mm. But we we were able between them and our our new production company yeah. with uh, Nimbus Nine out of Toronto, which also gave us uh, a foothold in Canada. Yeah. So now we became an international act, and uh, yeah, we, we probably one of the easiest things was well, most difficult as well. Figure out which part of the story we would be promoting yeah. uh, on any given week or. Or month, and uh, with every, all the craziness that was going on between the snakes and the chickens and the, the, <laughs> the guillotine yes. and the electric chair. I mean, you know, I love it when somebody used to do a, a bad review about the band and they name all these, they talk about all these things. I'm going, just what you just said, any kid in the world that loved rock and roll would want to see this show. <laughs> There's never been anything like it. You know, they said, oh, well, listen, you know, so negative and, you know, anti-Christian or whatever they, you know, anti-social. And that's where social debris came in. Yeah, yeah. Because even even when I wrote that title to the song that that eventually became the song that was on um, 
uh, Alice's Detroit Stories up. Yes. People, I mean, we used to, we wouldn't let them, but they were treating us like social debris. Mm. You know, we were really outcasts among the outcasts. Talk about, you know, you had all the different groups back in the 60s uh, between the, the, the gay community and the, uh, the race racial communities. Nobody really talks about not even not even hippies, but but long hairs mm. and and the musicians that we couldn't find a job. The way we looked, we could not go anywhere in the sixties or seventies ever find a job. We had to survive with our music. Yeah, and we all made that commitment a long time ago, way before our hair was in the middle of our backs. And and uh, believe we went in a lot of places that uh, were real close to getting into fights. Yeah, and so we, you know, we we knew about that. So we worked about we felt like social debris, and uh, a term that we didn't really know or understand at the time, but it was a great um, uh, a great a great statement and comment about you know those early days. Yeah, well, I think you know, I think you did a fine job of it. Uh, you know, <laughs> you got nothing to prove, have you? Let's be honest. Um, uh, the back catalogue of songs alone is just phenomenal. One of the first al- albums I ever had was Alice Cooper's Greatest Hits, which I remember uh, I was a kid and I, 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 I don't know if you have um, these shops in the States. There's a shop called Woolworths. I don't know if, if that's a, a worldwide brand or not. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm first BB gun there. Oh, there you go. Well, I bought I bought this <laughs> I bought this this album purely because the cover was cool. Didn't know anything about it, and I got it home. Oh, listen to this! So that quickly escalated into buying everything you know that you could from secondhand record shops. So, <laughs> yeah. and and the songs are just. There's one thing that that I have to ask. All the songs, nothing is four on the floor. Nothing is easy. It's all got. I can hear the rudiments that you you know that you learned from from marching. You can hear them. Oh through. yeah, I, I like to thank you. I like to call myself a rudimentary drummer, mm. and I can tell the difference between you know people listen to one song by any drummer whether whether they were schooled on the on the rudiments or whether they just you know picked up a set of drumsticks yeah. and started playing the drums, started banging away. No, I can tell, and and uh, and that's another great. Uh, thing to point out, and I appreciate that. Oh, hey, so it's my pleasure. But it's there, it's there for all to hear. You know, if you're a drummer, you should you should be able to pick things like that out. I'd, I'd hope if if you know them yourself, of course. Um, but it must have been because Alice isn't known for talking much in between songs, is he? It's one thing to another, and it must have been a tiring gig. I guess you were. I know you were all young guys, but it was it's was full on, wasn't it? Uh, y- yes, it was, and the reason we we never wanted to talk. Between um, between songs because we weren't that kind of a band and go hey how you doing you know yeah. rock and roll fuck that shit man and we we wanted to go up there and, and create a mystique yeah and our whole thing was I mean the album covers from the album the image image goes back to when I saw Brian Jones the first time on stage at the Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix Arizona 1964 on their first tour I, I thought Brian Jones was I was a big fan of Brian Wilson, drummer of the Beach Boys, because he has his long blonde hair and service style. That's how my hair looked then. Yeah. When I saw Brian Jones, and I go, man, he has outcooled the Beatles. First <laughs> of all, he's got blonde hair, and it's longer than any of the Beatles. And he stood up there so cocky with his ovation, teardrop guitar. And I said, image is what it's all about. And I've always said the triple, triple crown of success, write your own music, master your guitar. And then on stage, 
have a great image yeah. and have a great presence on stage. Yeah. And I learned that from Brian Jones. Yeah. So, um, yeah, these these things were important to us. We learned those those early on. And I think that that was one reason when people still look at the band in those pictures. It's like you said, you look at the greatest hits album. And uh, the, the guy that um, uh, I can't drew was the guy from uh, Pacific Ioneer that, that did that rendering uh, yeah. on the cover on the inside and the out and the back. And he really got the essence of the band mm. in that picture. The, the only thing on the inside cover, I stand a lot taller than anybody yeah, else. No, the band. Yeah. And he, he has to be the same, the same, <laughs> same height as them. I wasn't happy about that, but, you know, oh. he but no, he did a great rendering. And it's, and it's a great, great album. Um, if you look closely in my uh, coat pocket uh, on the front cover, I have a, a handle, a, a pistol handle coming of a revolver coming out of my coat. I've never and, noticed. Yeah, and I told when he when he showed me the picture first, I said, "Drew, I said, put a pistol in my pocket like a real gangster would have in there." And if you look closely, you can see the pistol handle. Oh, uh, who knew that? Wow! Well, I'm gonna ask the first <laughs> so he, thing I'm gonna have to do now when he, I get. Uh, it. Yeah, he was the one that he was the one that I taught. He, I had a lot to do. He kept bouncing ideas off of me, and I, I loved everything he did on that. So, and, and if you've seen the. Um, uh, internet, there's a picture that was taken like in 1936, which is the original junkyard or uh, or the big gas, uh, the original gasoline station back in the day that that photograph was uh, uh, was was uh, was created after. He yeah. just put in other things, but the basic design of that is from a photograph from the 30s. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's I'm going to have to check. That's amazing. Obviously, you don't hear about these stories every day, but hearing it, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, as you were. But and I didn't, and Maddie, I didn't know about that picture until until years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Oh, a long okay. time after the album was out. I never, I just thought he just, you know, thought about that image and yeah. putting the cards there, and, uh, like an old, uh, you know, garage from that from that era. But it actually came from a photograph. Mm. And, if I can find it, I'll send you a copy. Yeah, please do. It's funny, you know, I mean, greatest hits albums are often kind of throwaway. They're not, you know, it's it smacks of laziness sometimes, or greatest hits, we'll just put that. But yours stands out as a standalone album of, on its own for me because it's one of the first ones I bought, and it, you know. Well, the the uh, the one the one song that we needed as, as the filler, and it's certainly not a filler, is, and I... I kind of suggested it when they were looking for extra song was De Desperado off of the killer album. Mm. Desperado by no means is a filler song. <laughs> it's a great song. Mm. And uh, I think Dennis and Michael wrote the song, but um, it, it, it's a wonderful song. And that that's one that it, it really was, I don't think it, it may have been a B side to one of the singles, um, maybe under my wheels, although I'm not certain fans would know more about that. I yeah. think than I would at this yeah. point, yeah. but um yeah, the, the greatest hits is a great collection of songs. For sure. Oh, it's as I say, and and it, that's what turned my head straight away. I was like, "Wow, listen to it again at home." You know, not knowing quite what it was, I could see the long hair, and I thought, "This, I'm probably going to like this." And I put it on, <laughs> and it's like, "Wow!" I must have listened to it for about six months solid. You know, and it's, it, I've probably bought another one since, so it's, it's probably not the original one. But now, look, if you don't mind, Neil, I've got a question from um, a good friend of mine, Rob Reiner, who plays drums with the Canadian heavy metal band Anvil. Okay. Big fan of yours. And I, I spoke to him earlier and I said, look, you know, we're, we're having a chat later on and 
he said, oh, I said, if you've got a question, he said, yeah, please. So uh, I don't like reading questions, but I can't remember the exact wording. So I'm going to read it if that's okay. And it says, in the glory days of Alice Cooper Records, uh, love it to death through to Billion Dollar Babies, how much pre-production writing was uh, put forth prior to recording each track or were some of the ideas spawned on the fly and then laid down? So that's Rob's question. <clears throat> that's a great question, Maddie, and, and it's not asked enough, but we were for several reasons, and one is just wasting money in the studio. We, we always had, uh, even in Michigan, when we were doing the pre-production with Bob Ezra and Jack Richardson for Love It to Death and Killer, we had a big studio in one of the barns. It was a big heated area in the barn. We had, I said, oh, it's bigger than a stage. Mm. And so we would literally do every single note mm. in pre-production. And we did it with Killer. Uh, we did it with Love It to Death. By the time Schools Out came out, we were living in Greenwich, Connecticut. We had a, another big uh, student. This is a huge mansion from the, the 20s that we uh, that we lived in. And they had a, a very, very large area that, again, we had enough room for us for a stage. Mm. And we did all of our pre-production there. So but when we went into the studio, we didn't go in for three months to start writing songs. Uh, in that era, Michael was writing all the time. He was our main writer. Dennis was writing and I was writing. Um, and Alice was always working on lyrics, which was his yeah. main job. Although, like Second Coming was a song that he wrote yeah. uh, on his own. So everybody was, was writing. So there's always songs just coming and coming and coming. And, and they would all get recorded. There's no songs that are on tape somewhere that were extra songs. I've been asked that many times, too. Mm. So Pre-production was very important. Yeah. We went in there to do one job, get the song recorded as quickly as possible. Yeah. That's why I said the drums had to be perfect from mm. the beginning to end. I yeah. mentioned that before. Yeah. The only way you can do that is by working everything out. Example, uh, Billion Dollar Babies, Bob had really an idea more than the, the flams in the beginning yeah, yeah. A, that I have on the beginning of the song. He really wanted that song to be straighter all the way through. Right. And then he, when he heard what I was doing, he goes, that sounds very interesting. I like it, but you got to play it perfect from beginning to end. So, again, I did it, and it, that's the way forever it was, and I knew it would be because I could, I could, I still, there's a, there's a, a beat and a swing to that song that's never changed when I play it, and nobody else can match it. And same with everybody else in the band, all their parts. That was all learned and done in pre production. We went in the studio and band knocked them out, and we would record the, the basic tracks probably within uh, a couple of days. Sometimes we would do maybe a third of the album or a half of the album and come back in, yeah. you know, uh, a week later and, and finish it up. But all the work, all the big work like that was done outside the studio. Anything, if there was addition of strings or horns or instruments, mm. I'm sure Bob Ezrin already had that in mind, like in Desperado, the cello in Desperado. Yeah. Um, he probably had that in mind. Bob Ezra would play keyboard. Michael Bruce would play keyboard on songs. Yeah. But again, yeah, pre-production was very, very big for us. So, so Bob, Bob would have been there in, in, while you were doing all the pre-production stuff. He'd have, would he been there with you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah he, was, he was there 100% of the time yeah. while working on it. If for some reason, um, I mean, that was his job. Mm. You know, he, he, this was his first band he ever did. Was it? He, uh, Jack Richardson would be there. 
Yeah, Bob Ezrin, I Love of the Death was his first album. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, and then Killer was the second. So <laughs> he was he was um, he uh, he was an he was an engineer. I mean, he just started with Nimbus now, and he was like you know the new kid on the block with the, with the studio. Mm. And uh, he, Jack Richardson got together with us for Love of the Death and for Killer. But the majority of the time, Bob was there with us working, and he was like you know, he became literally the sixth member of the Alice Cooper band. Wow. That's the way to do it. Um, Rob asks one more question. I think you've answered that really comprehensively. It's interesting that as well. So thank you for that, Rob. Um, and his last question, uh, um, Rob is a, a real vintage snare drum collector. So this question crops up a lot with Rob. Uh, what snare was used on the majority of those records? Was it one drum or was it different drums for different things? Well, I, ha I have everything from, I'll tell you the ones that I did use all the way from Pretties for You through uh, the, um, uh, it would be through Muscle of Love. And that would be um, uh, Roger's Dynasonic Snare. Right. Uh, uh, the, the, the Ludwig, um, Ludwig, uh, uh, was it a Ludwig Dynasonic? I, I don't remember. No, Rod Roger's Dynasonic it was. Yeah. yeah Roger's Dynasonic. And then the Ludwig, uh, their chrome snare drums yeah, and custom snares. And that, that was pretty soon easy action. And then Leva did that. That was sponsored by Slingerland. Okay. So I had, I had um, the Slingerland chrome drums. I remember them. And, and a chrome snare drum. And, uh, and I think I had a five and a uh, five and a six inch snare, the thinner one and the deeper one that uh, love to death and killer. And uh, on Billion Dollar Babies, I'm not sure what I used because by that time I had a pretty good collection of snare drums. Sure. Uh, but, but I was still using Billion Dollar Babies. I was still using the Slingler. Yeah. It was during that time period when we were at um, uh, the studio, Morgan Studio, recording the last tracks, which Billion Dollar Babies was one of them. Right. And that's when um, Bonovan was there and came and, and did the vocals on it. But uh, that was when I went to premiere drums outside of London. Yeah, and they became my sponsor for the Billion Dollar Baby tour and uh, and the Muscle of Love tour. After that, I and remember so, this kit <laughs> so well. Yeah, so by, by so by uh, that was the mirrored kit. So by the time uh, Muscle of Love came around, I was playing all premieres plus the premier um, snare drums, which I had a uh, a I think it was a it was the White Pearl yeah. snare drum they had. Not quite sure of the of the uh, uh, the model. And then uh, again, uh, I, I had a five-inch and a six-inch um, premier chrome snare drums that yeah. I used to. So those were the drums that I used, and and I uh, I enjoyed all of them. And yeah, great drums. Uh, to this day, um, I still uh, you know tend to use those drums for my Killsmiths project. Yeah. The only set I've got, I have all my drums except the premier. Kit, I think it was 2015 or 16 at a big auction uh, with Heritage Auction down in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. And uh, and that, along with the guillotine, the original guillotine that the amazing Randy built, uh, and the premier mirror drums, I sold both of those in the, in the auction. But in um, the mirror drums, I also played uh, in South America when we did that show for 125,000 people right. in Yeah. In Sao Paulo. And then uh, the the set got a little bit beat up. I put it back together again and used yeah. it on the uh, when Michael and Dennis and I put the battle axe 
uh, album together. Yeah. I used some of the premier drums on that album, the Battle Axe album, uh, uh, with the Million Dollar Baby yeah. band. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, was that Most of the snares I've, I've used with the Eagles, but I have Camcos, and I have um, uh, other Ludwigs. Uh, I think I have probably a dozen or so, Gretsch. Yeah. So I have a couple of Gretsch snares too, a chrome one, and a really big, about a seven, eight inch, uh, seven or eight inch uh, Gretsch snare. And they're bird's eye maple. Oh, lovely. Are, are you, would you consider yourself a collector of snare drums or are you, uh, you just have some and use them? And No, these are, these are just mine, Matty. I, I've never gone out to find anybody to buy any other snare drums. These are ones that basically I acquired during the era of the band. The only, uh, the Gretsch set that I have, which is a, a combination between a maple set and a bird's eye maple set. Mm. Uh, with 22-inch bass drums uh, <clears throat> and four toms, two floors, two snares. Uh, that I love. I use that on the Killsmith uh, music several times. Um, but other than that, I don't really go. I don't have the room yeah. that I used to have for those things. But I will tell you right now, um, uh, the um, uh, uh, Steve uh, is his name. He's the head uh, drum tech for um, Motley Crue drummer. Okay, Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee, and he also has his own snare drum company right. here in, in Phoenix. Uh, I believe it's DTS okay. Custom Snares, and he's actually making a snare drum for me as we speak. It's called the Platinum God, <laughs> and it is the hardware from a '60s vintage uh, uh, Rogers um, Dynasonic. Yeah, and uh, the wood is about six different plies of uh, four different woods all the way from uh, uh, cherry and maple and birch and hickory. Uh, it's a ply, it's a six ply uh, wood snare drum, 14 inch, and I think it's five inches in the in diameter or in, in the width Definitely. height. Yeah. So I, I think it'll be a pretty, uh, pretty awesome drum when it's done. And it's going to, um, it's, like I said, it's got a badge, a special custom badge that I designed with a snake on it, my Kachina snake. Yeah. And it's, this is the Platinum God on it. And uh, so that that will be on um, any future recordings with the original Alice Cooper group. That'll be the snare drum. I used, actually, I used his snare drums for the, uh, the two songs on the Detroit Stories. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Incredible. I mean... <laughs> You know, we could quite happily talk for, well, I could happily talk for hours. I'm sure you've got things you'd rather be doing. But, um, you know, Neil, this has been a, a real pleasure. Um, I've got so many things that I've managed to ask you, which I've wanted to ask for years, you know, and it's, it's, ah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. So thank you so much for giving up your time so generously. I really appreciate it. Really. Nettie, you're welcome. Eddie, you know, we'll be doing some work, hopefully, down, down the road in the future. And uh, if you have any other questions at some other point, you want to want to chat. I love I love your questions, and uh, they're very smart, and they're not, not the normal questions because we're actually it's drummer to drummer, and I dig that. So that's very uh, but that's I appreciate it, man. Kind of you to say. I really appreciate appreciate it. Thanks, Neil. Take care, my right, friends. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Take care. Right, stay safe. Thank you.